You know, Bond has MI6, Ethan Hunt has the IMF, and now we need you to join our spy network. Yes, that's right, we've launched our very own Patreon page. So head on over to patreon.com slash spyhards and read all about the exclusive Agents in the Field series where we tackle the best non-spy films by famous spy actors and, of course, monthly commentaries of your favourite espionage classics only available for our patrons. So join our spy network now, support the show, and become an agent. Cam, on with the show. Hello and welcome to Spy Hards Podcast, where your hosts go deep undercover into the world of spy movies to decipher which films make the knock list. But remember, this information, it's strictly for your ears only. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam the Provocateur. And Scott, you look like you're ready to dance. I am ready to plant my feet and rise. (laughs) That's right. Uh, Well, we're already doing lines from the film, so Cam, what on earth are we talking about this week? We are tackling 1988's Little Nikita, starring Sidney Poitier and River Phoenix. Now, I had never seen a River Phoenix film before this. Yes, you had. What one? It would have been Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Oh yeah, we mentioned this last week. Okay, I had never seen a film where I knew it was him and cared enough to pay attention. Okay, fair enough. Uh, I don't... Uh, no, I'd seen Explorers, um, which was a sci-fi film from the 1980s, about 1985, I think. Um, yeah, not a lot, though. Not a lot. No, I just know he has quite the uh, unfortunate sort of time in Hollywood, uh, ultimate demise. Um, quite a sad story from what I've read. So I was quite keen to get into this one, actually, because I'd never seen him. Yeah, I mean... I haven't dug into some of his more serious work because when I was doing the research on this one, I'm looking up a lot of the movies he was acclaimed for around this time period. And I really haven't seen many at all. Like he did one, I think called running on empty that I really have to track down and watch now um, because it was a pretty big deal this exact same year. Yeah. That came up in my research too. And he will of course reunite the team of uh, Poitiers and uh, Phoenix when we get to Sneakers, which is a very highly requested film that we tackle down the road as well. Yeah, and that's one I actually have seen, but um, don't have the like strongest of memories. So yeah, I'm looking forward to revisiting it. We'll, we'll sneak back to that one at some point. But let's talk about Little Nikita. And this might be the longest Letterbox.com synopsis <laughs> I have ever seen in my entire life. So pitch your tent. Folks, get comfy. You know, wow, pitch your tent. Yeah, this is a... <laughs> Do you know what that's a euphemism for? <laughs> no? It's like get an erection. <laughs> <laughs> well, as you can see, I really enjoyed reading this one. <laughs> uh, anyway, little Nikita. He went to bed, an all-American kid, and woke up the sun of Russian spies. Roy Parmenter is an FBI agent in San Diego. 20 years ago, his partner was killed by a Soviet spy nicknamed Scuba. Still at large, Scuba 
is now trying to extort the Soviets to prove he's serious. He's killing their agents one by one, including sleeper agents under deep cover awaiting orders. Roy interviews a high school lad, Jeff Grant, an applicant to the Air Force Academy. In a routine background check, Roy discovers that Jeff's parents are sleepers, and he must see if Jeff is also a spy. Confront the parents, yet protect them, and catch his nemesis. Meanwhile, the Soviets have sent their own spy catcher, the loner Karpov, to reel in scuba. Nice pun. Alliances shift. It's cat and mouse. Oh, oh, oh. Sorry, sorry. I, I didn't realize this was going to go for half an hour. Boy, I, I feel like the case with this synopsis on Letterboxd is, look, I think uh, Little Nikita... Not a lot of diehard fans is going to be my guess, but like one out there was like, I am going to write the synopsis to Little Nikita on Letterboxd, and I am going to unfold it with all the majesty of War and Peace or something like that. Well, firstly, I'm going to say that this Letterboxd.com synopsis gave new meaning to the phrase sleeper agents. And secondly, rather extravagant. Well, rather, I, I definitely pitched a tent about that one. But, um, <laughs> um, but yeah, I was talking to friend of the show Jeff Quest, who joined us for our Day of the Jackal episode a while back, and he is a big fan of this film. Yeah. So there are fans out there, mm-hmm. and he he writes about spy books. He knows things. Right. Hopefully, not about pitching tents. <laughs> Okay, I'm sorry everyone, I'll stop doing that now. Unless it comes up again later. Oh, (laughs) jeez. But as I alluded to, I had no connection to this film. I'd never heard of it before. I'd only really seen Sidney Poitier and a couple of things. I know he's popping back next week as well. But this was really my first main experience of Sidney Poitier and River Phoenix. But I was more aware of Poitier's work. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've seen a lot of the classic Sidney Poitier films, you know, Lilies in the Field, um, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, um, In the Heat of the Night. So I've definitely watched a lot of the movies that he became very famous for back in the 70s and, was, and 60s. It was a groundbreaking actor at the time. The Defiant Ones is a terrific movie as well with Tony Curtis. So I feel like I'm more familiar with Sidney Poitier during that classic era than I am with a lot of the movies that would have been released when I was young, you know, like back when I'm in my, you know, teenage years, for example, like he did a lot of movies kind of like this or like the one we're going to tackle next week. There's also stuff like Sneakers, um, but they weren't roles at that point that like really <laughs> grabbed a like teenage cam, you know, like made me really go like, oh, who's this guy? I can see that. It's kind of like the um, Daphne Coleman. Yeah. It's a little bit of those sort of character roles that aren't necessarily flashy or exciting to like a teenager or a 20-year-old film fan. You kind of dismiss them. Like one an actor actually I would kind of compare him to in terms of this era is I remember when I was younger, I would always think William Hurt was like the most boring actor ever. He showed up in a lot of movies, always played kind of serious guys. Um, and I would always just go like, who is this guy? And then... A handful of years ago, maybe like 10 years ago, I sat down and watched all the like William Hurt performances of the 80s 
and early 90s that he'd done. And it was like he was one of the most electric actors around. Like, it's unbelievable how cool William Hurt was in the 80s. You know, you watch movies like Body Heat or Broadcast News, um, Altered States, and you're like, this guy's incredible. This is going to be the next, like, legacy actor. You're going to see this guy giving, like, just towering performances forever. And then at a certain point, he settled into more, you know, just kind of downbeat character roles. You see him as, you know, Thunderbolt Ross in the Marvel movies, and you're like, yeah, he's fine. Does the material well, but you don't get a lot of that high wire stuff like he used to do when he was younger. Well, you know, everybody hurts. Mm. Yes, indeed they do. Sometimes. Indeed they do. Sometimes, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I said the word scuba about five times in that letterbox.com synopsis. Um, so I guess we should probably scuba dive into how this film came to be. Yeah, okay. So this movie was sort of the pet project of producer Harry Gitz. And... Um, he oversaw this movie during four years of development. And so I was trying to figure out like what his connection was to some of the writers. It seems like there was no connection really whatsoever. But um, Gates was a producer who'd done a lot of earlier Jack Nicholson films like Going South, um, Drive, he said. Essentially, this guy seems to be a friend of Jack Nicholson's because even into the future, he would produce like About Schmidt starring Jack Nicholson. So he doesn't like have this big auspicious... Um, filmography to his name but he obviously had a little bit of juice and was working fairly regularly and somehow seized upon this story and if you look at the film the story is credited to different writers than the screenplay there was a story by tony muska who had written and produced stand and deliver the teacher drama starring um, edward james Olmos, and terry schwartz this was his first film these two guys somehow came up with a concept for what little nikita is and it was then handed over to two other writers to take over. And you had John Hill, who'd done uncredited work on Close Encounters of Third Kind, as well as written um, the Andy Kaufman film Heartbeeps, and would go on to do stuff like Quigley Down Under with Tom Selleck, and a show, he wrote a couple episodes of a show that, Scott, you should hold in very high regard, Thunder in Paradise, starring Hulk Hogan. <laughs> I can't say I've ever seen that show or Quickly Down South or whatever you just said. Down Under? Quickly Down Under was like, I think, a modestly successful Western at the time. and has gotten a lot of traction over the years. It played on TV a lot. And now it's something of a, I hesitate to even say cult classic. It's pretty well known. Um, I don't know if it was played as much there, though. It's set in Australia, I believe the movie was, um, which would make sense, Quickly Down Under. But, um, yeah, I don't know how it plays over there in England, but on you know this side, it was one of those movies that was on TV like every three hours. We struggle with Australian TV up here because everything's upside down. So we have to like go on handstands to watch it. It's really rough. Sure. We're willing to make the sacrifice. You're not, I guess. Mm, no, no. We're stuck up British people, remember? <laughs> Stuffy. And the, <laughs> and the other writer on this movie was Bo Goldman who had started in TV and then went on to write One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which he won an Oscar for. Then he wrote Melvin and Howard, which he won an Oscar for. Then he did Flamingo Kid, which was the um, breakout movie for Matt Dillon. And he would go on later on down the road to write Scent of a Woman, which would get him an Oscar nomination. So this was a very acclaimed writer of the period. And so you had these two guys fleshing out this story concept and um, they brought on board Richard Benjamin, who was an actor-director. He 
is actually the second lead in the movie Westworld, um, opposite Yul Brynner. So he's a fairly prominent actor of the time, not someone you necessarily know by name, but he pops up a lot. He did movies like Catch-22 and Deconstructing Harry. And um, he had directed a movie called My Favorite Year, starring Peter O'Toole, that had gotten him his launch. And he'd done uh, the Tom Hanks comedy, The Money Pit, and would, go, and would go on to do My Stepmother is an Alien with Dan Aykroyd, Mermaids with Cher, Made in America with Ted Danson and Whoopi Goldberg, Milk Money with Ed Harris and Melanie Griffith, and Mrs. Winterbourne with Ricky Lake. So he was one of these guys who... I wouldn't say was a visionary behind the camera, but worked with a lot of people on sort of these comedic vehicles. I just want to make a note of something. Did you say the guy who wrote the script, or at least was part of the team that really fleshed the script out, had won Oscars? Two Oscars, yeah. Two. He won two Oscars. I need to write this down. Thank you. Okay. Okay. <laughs> well, yeah, okay. He, he only... As you know, he shares credit on this one. He's not top bill. Hey, so hey, I hey, assume hey. He was brought hey, in. hey, hey, hey. <laughs> I haven't said what I think yet. Don't go judging me. Yeah. <laughs> so Richard Benjamin, the director, though, said what drew him in was the timeliness of the script. Um, just the relationships between America and Russia at this point in time. It felt like it was really working in themes of the period. Kind of, I guess, the way that a few years later, Star Trek VI would, right? And of course, gotcha. Of course, gotcha. The most timely of all spy movies. The the mold that everyone looks to when they think of 80s spy films. <laughs> That's right. Now, um, initially this movie, because it was being produced by Harry Gitz, I'm guessing, was intended to be a Jack Nicholson vehicle. And I don't know if Jack Nicholson ever flirted with this movie whatsoever, but I think it was kind of like, my guess is they were developing it to potentially be a movie for him, but he probably had near, uh, zero interest in doing it. And also originally it was supposed to be more comedic, and they decided to shift it more dramatic when, I think with the hiring of River Phoenix, and also they just decided they were more interested in the idea of a young man having to grow up overnight, and they knew that they could do something more interesting dramatically than perhaps comedically. And Sidney Poitier was a big fan of the script. He said it was one that he just tore through and he was nervous the whole time it was going to lose its momentum and not grab him. But he said it did consistently throughout. Uh, I, I should be writing this down. <laughs> and now apparently River Phoenix's agent loved the script. Was like, you have to do this. It's going to show the full range of your acting abilities. And so... This seems like it was a little bit of the agent pushing him towards this. Um, River Phoenix later said he really didn't like the way the Russians were portrayed. He said it was a bit stereotypical. So, yeah, this may have been a it's good for your career move kind of thing. So, yeah. Right. I don't know where he was in his career, but, you know, if he's going up against Sidney Poitier, that's a pretty good co-star. Mm -hmm. Poitier has top billing, but Phoenix is second. Right. And the two actors got along really well. And Sidney Poitier um, said, As an actor, River is so naturally gifted. You're not working against an actor who's relying on technique. You're working against raw talent, that's, and that's very invigorating to me. He sparkles. So Sidney Poitier really appreciated his co-star and apparently somewhat adopted River Phoenix over the course of the movie. And River Phoenix said, He gave me tips about life. I was so open to his advice and suggestions. He's a wonderful person and a really bright man. So, regardless of the final product, obviously there was a relationship formed there that was really, you know, powerful for both people. I'm sure we'll get into it in a minute, but I, 
those two are not things I have issues with. Yeah, yeah. And this movie was sort of the, the trigger was pulled on it by Columbia Pictures chief David Putnam. And he believed this could be, you know, a hit for the studio. And he was deposed shortly before the release of this movie. So this would have been a whole new regime coming in to release and market Little Nikita. And I give that emphasis on these facts up front because I'm about to reveal the box office on this movie. Oh no, this isn't going to be good, is it? So the budget was $15 million. Okay. 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 Let, me, uh, let me try and guess this then. Okay. So budget was 15 and you've already implied it was bad. Yeah. Okay. So I, I have to think it's lower. Uh-huh. But you almost hinted like it was a train wreck. So I'm going to say it barely scratched a million. It did just over, Scott. Oh, God. <laughs> just over. Oh, God. <laughs> That's not good. Domestically, it did $1.73 million. Ooh. It didn't get an international release, so it wound up with a final worldwide total of $1.73 million. Which was the budget to pay Poitier and Phoenix, I imagine. Uh, maybe. It probably wouldn't have covered both of them. Maybe, Maybe one of them. I mean, say what you want about the film, and I'm sure we'll have some choice words about some of this film. But at least they made a punt on something. You know, I I wish we had films like this now. Yeah, I do. When I see a number like that, though, and they're stating that the um, Columbia Pictures regime had changed, it, they probably dumped it. Probably minimal marketing, you know, throw it out. I, I didn't look at the release date, but it's probably not a very good release window. And, you know, when you are taking over a studio, you don't want your predecessor to look good. So they'll often just dump movies and be very happy when they bomb because they go, hey, I'm going to turn all this around. Yeah, it is just a shame. It is just a shame. And and a lot of people in those days relied on the the rental returns, things like that, which is fair enough. But I, I never understand taking your own legs out. Yeah, yeah. I mean, these sort of uh, decisions are made a lot with regime changes, even today. So, and they probably will going forward. It's just kind of Hollywood tradition. This is the kind of thing that will end up on Netflix now. Yeah. Oh, totally. 100%. Yeah. Uh, so it was number 158 for the year, right between Stormy Monday, which was a film starring Melanie Griffith, Tommy Lee Jones, Sting, and Sean Bean. I've never heard of it, but I'm convinced I now have to watch it. And uh, The Lady in White, which was a 60s period piece starring Lucas Haas. After watching uh, David Lynch's Dune again recently, anything with Sting in it has my attention. Yeah, like I got to track down this Stormy Monday. This sounds bizarre. (laughs) Just judging from the cast, yes, I just hope that Sting turns up in a bikini again. We can only hope. We can only hope. So the uh, top three for 1988 at the worldwide box office, number one was Who Framed Roger Rabbit, number two was Rain Man, number three was Coming to America, and a couple of final notes, River Phoenix was nominated for Best Supporting Actor this year for the other movie he made, Running on Empty. So he may not have, you know, struck gold at the box office with Little Nikita, but it was a very good year for him because of Running on Empty, and also... You know, you hinted at it earlier, Scott. Five years later, Phoenix and Poitier would reteam on 1992's Sneakers. Which I think has a lot more uh, 
more of a cult fandom than this film does. So I think I'm glad we're starting off with the initial pairing and then we'll get to see the the evolution later on down the line. Yeah, I think that's going to be a lot of fun. And I didn't actually realize that was as much a thing until I sat down to do the research and I was like, oh my God, that's right. They're both in sneakers. It did not occur to me when I actually watched the movie. I, I am... I know we're talking about a different film this week, but I am keen to get to Sneakers, but I don't want to rush it. I feel like it's one of those ones that we need to get to. We need to take our time. That's right. That's right. That's, you know, one of those milestone movies that I think uh, we'll have to make kind of a big deal about. Yeah. Right next to, uh, I don't know, The Man With One White Shoe or whatever the original film was. I think it was Black Shoe, wasn't it? Sure. Sure. We We know we're hitting the heights when we're doing that one. Yeah, exactly. That's when, like, Spy Hard just spiraling into the abyss. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, let's get back to Little Nikita, which is obviously the height of spy films. That's right. Um, okay, so neither of us have seen this film, so I think I'll go first with my thoughts on the film. Yeah. It's a weird one for me. I didn't like the film. I'll I'll say that right. I, I think the plot is completely preposterous. It It, it stretches far beyond any sort of credibility. But I think all you can really hang your hat on this film is the performances from Phoenix and Poitier because they are clearly punching up. They're trying to lift this film and unfortunately its legs are shaky, which is why I had to write down that the one of the writers had won two Oscars because that frankly confuses the hell out of me because it, I'm sure that there was a plot at some point and they evolved the plot, but I could sit here poking holes in this entire story and none of it makes sense. And so I, I was kind of cold on my second watch because much as I enjoyed the performances, I'd seen that. The plot didn't need any more digging into it. It's not like one of those spy stories when I revisit it the second time I can sort of pick out hints that it makes for later on on the reveals and stuff. This film isn't that smart. Yeah. It's pretty, it's pretty stupid. And... Maybe a bit offensively so, but uh, all it has to hang its hat on, as I said, is the performances. And I I do feel that there's a slight romantic side to this film. Uh, Not in terms of actual romance, but like a romantic view on the Cold War and those those sort of stories. And I enjoyed that. I've really started to love these 80s films that we're tackling from Cloak and Dagger, Jumpin' Jack, Flash. uh, You know, you can name a bunch more, probably better than I can, but... I really just enjoy this type of storytelling, even if the film is kind of schlocky, which this definitely is. There is like a um, technically competent level of filmmaking behind some of these movies, right? Like, they're not particularly good, but they're put together in a way that the movie still kind of works. Like, there's a lot of movies I've seen in years, you know, more recent, where I'll see something and it's like incoherent. Like, the movie is just edited to shreds, you know, something like Jonah Hex or the Fantastic Four reboot. Like, movies that are expensive, that are shown to summer movie audiences that are incoherent on any conceivable level. And I watch, you know, some of these more forgotten, lower-tier 80s movies, and I'm like, you know, say what you will about their energy or how good the storytelling is. They are hammered together in a very competent way, where you go, yep, that told a story beginning to end. I could follow it. It made sense. That's something. <laughs> that's yeah, something. It, it, well, it's an achievement that they've made a film yeah. that anyone could sit down and watch. That's fair enough. Um, and there is an enjoyable simplicity to this film. If you don't want to engage your brain, it's quite good in that sense because it, it, it really doesn't stand up to any type of scrutiny. 
No, and I kind of sit where you uh, are at the moment, where the performances were kind of what drew me in. Like, the actors, River Phoenix and Sidney Poitier, just have, like, a gravitas that when you toss them into material like this, if the movie's not particularly strong, they're investing a lot in it, so you tend to take it more seriously and follow along with it with maybe, you know, if this had been different actors or a mismatched duo, you'd just be sitting there rolling your eyes throughout, whereas these two keep trying to convince you they're in an actual, you know, authentic spy movie we should be involved in. And I felt like the movie often let them down because I thought, like, the relationship between those two characters should have really, really worked in the movie. And it was often... The movie felt very distracted a lot, where it was kind of focusing on a lot of different things. It felt kind of like it was sacrificing the strengths of some relationships just to bounce the characters around. And I have a real question for you, Scott, and it's something that I really struggled with while I was watching the movie. Who was this movie made for? I did think about this question, actually. It's very interesting that you brought it up. It's in my notes. Um, I didn't know if I had an answer. It was just going to be sort of a gut. My, my initial reaction was it was for young adults. That's what you would assume. I saw it as a film for young adults. You could put yourself in River Phoenix's shoes. I mean, anyone that age would not want the wall, the, the rug pulled out from underneath them. You know, they're just getting a grasp of who they are. He even says in the film, I don't know who I am yet. They they say that pretty early. And to have whatever he thinks he might be completely pulled away because his parents have been lying to him since day zero, that's quite a arduous thing to go through. And so I could see them pitching this film to those sort of late teens, early 20s, which are the people that go to the cinemas. Yeah, and I agree with you that, like, when I'm watching it, I would assume the same thing. But the movie kind of doesn't really want to delve too strongly into sort of the um, emotions of a teenager. You know, like, he's got a girlfriend in this movie that's completely ignored. Like, you would want a more of a sense of, like, what this young person's world is like. What are his friends like? What's it like going to high school? The movie ignores all of those elements. Cam, he's too busy playing basketball with Sidney Poitier and getting sweaty with a full-grown man. <laughs> and then drinking beers post-exercise, which I think is, is really good for you. Yeah, and smoking cigarettes later in the movie. Um, the 80s, people. The 80s. But, like, it seems like... It's not particularly interested in the world of this young person, which I would think if I was in that sort of River Phoenix age at the time, I would not have found the movie that interesting. And a lot of it would have been about, you know, Sidney Poitier and what's going on with him and his relationship with his guidance counselor. And it just feels like there's a lot of stuff. <laughs> I know we'll get to that later. But there's a lot of just elements that like, to me, would make the movie unappealing for young people. But at the same time, if I'm an adult going to this movie and I'm seeing this villain named Scuba who's killing people in fish-related ways, you know, <laughs> or things to do with dolphins and water skiing, I'd be like, this movie's really silly. This is clearly made for young people. So it's like standing at this weird, like, middle ground and I don't know who the movie's for. I, I didn't get that water connection until you just said that. Yeah. Oh my god. Scuba and they all die in water. What the hell? Yeah. Yeah, he... There's the, the corpse found at SeaWorld um, by the dolphin. There's the um, water skier, the mm -hmm. water skiing assassination. There's the murder on the boat. Yeah. There is um, him jumping in on the guy in the shower. Water is always involved with the scuba assassin. Clearly, I'm a little wet behind the ears when it comes to spy stories. <laughs> like, that stuff is really silly. 
so when it started in the movie, I was going like, oh, okay, this is kind of like a, you know, a little edgier than a cloak and dagger, but along those sorts of lines, like there's a silliness that kids can get involved in. But then it's like, if I was a kid, I would not find the Sidney Poitier um, River Phoenix relationship that much fun to watch. No, you're right. The start of it, and, and one of the things I wrote down was, is this a comedy? Because, you know, he's got, he's almost got like the Michael J. Fox in Back to the Future intro, in a sense, where it's just like, hey, this is the exciting, wacky world of River Phoenix. Yeah. And, and you know, he's, 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 isn't he skateboarding at the start as well? Or he's like on a bike or something? And then he's hitching a ride and he's joining the Air Force for no reason. I, I found that oh, completely insane. I thought there was a very clear reason he was joining the Air Force. And it has to do with what year this movie comes out, 1988. Is there something I'm missing by being British? Uh, I don't think so, no, no. Okay, I was one when this came out, so can you give me a hint? 1986, Top Gun comes out. Uh... And two years later, you have a teenager wanting to join the Air Force. Top Gun was a phenomenon, and I think we're seeing a little bit of the Top Gun effect going on here. Why was there not a poster of it in the background? That would have been perfect. Oh my god. Okay, you know what? I was going to save this for later, but you cued me up for it. So there is a point where they go inside his room, right? And there's like some posters. He has a poster for the movie Wings, which was the first ever Best Picture winner in like 1928 or something. 28 or 29. It's a silent film starring Clara Bow. And I was like staring at this going like, there is no like teenager in 1988 who's hanging up a wings poster like that's insane well they might be hanging up a wings poster for talking about the band but yes in terms of the film you're right i saw it too and i i didn't know the film like you would so i googled it whilst i was watching the film the first time i was thinking why who would have that you, you'd have pictures of like you know i don't know abba or something i don't know <laughs> what, a, what abba i don't know i was one <laughs> queen i love queen that's cool right Sure. Yeah. I guess, yeah. Come on, you were like 50 at this point. What were you listening to in the 80s? A lot of the old hymns of the medieval era. That was really <laughs> what I was listening to. Druid chanting, yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, incantations, yeah. <laughs> things like that. Um, so, in 1988, you're asking me to decorate like a teenager's room? Top Gun. There's a poster right there. It would tie completely into what he wants in the movie. Look, I get it. Maybe there's some sort of issue with copyright or whatever. They don't want to pay to put a Top Gun poster in there. But Wings? There's got to be another plain movie out there other than Wings. And look, I've seen Wings. It's a good movie. But that's insane. Absolutely insane. I can't believe that I accidentally made that connection for you. That's, that's, that's great. I think we have some issues to tackle with this film. But I, I kind of want to start with the good bits. That's how I like to do it here. And we've spoken about the performances of Phoenix and Poitier, and I think they're both terrific. One thing I think helped as well is the relationship, the chemistry between the two of them, which which started here and obviously went on with Sneakers, but you could tell they wanted to be together in the same room. Even when they're playing basketball, yeah, it's pretty silly looking, but it almost feels like they actually did play and get sweaty before they filmed it, like they wanted to be together. Yeah, I mean, it seems like there was a little bit of a mentor-protege relationship going on here. And it just feels like two really great actors working with material that's maybe not the greatest, but giving everything they can to it. Because they are investing their scenes together with a lot of gravitas. They're both trying to really deliver on this material. And ultimately, like, a real positive for me, just 
going off of that was River Phoenix himself. Like, there are scenes in this that if you had, you know, cast a different young actor, it would have been a disaster. Like, it could have been really brutal to watch. And you have a moment where he's, um, you know, confronting his parents about, you know, them being Russian sleeper uh, agents. And it's like, this could have easily been just like a histrionic teenager performance where the kid just starts screaming or something like that. Like, we've all seen those bad teenage performances in movies where um, you get either, you know, an actor who's not really up to the material or be a director who really can't direct young people at all. And I'm watching River Phoenix go, you know, toe-to-toe with like an actor like Richard Jenkins as his father here. And I'm completely buying it. Like, he's very strong. I just wish the movie wrote him better scenes like giving them a real strong emotional you know through line here whereas it feels like this is not the most elegantly assembled movie no and you said this earlier where it it almost seems to go off in random directions and not focus on potentially the right people at the right time Mm -hmm. like yeah you get all these random scenes of well Sidney Poitier chatting up the guidance counselor at school let's talk about that (laughs) now I don't know why we needed that subplot. I I loved every scene. I loved it. I loved seeing them flirt. There was there was it was a smoking scene. It was flirty. It was hot. I, I was getting hot just watching them two flirt. It was great. But I just thought, what is this doing in this film? I do not get it. He's <laughs> Sidney Poitier is laying it on thick. He's like, oh, it's it's getting hard in here. I, I thought he was gonna get naked in that filing room. And like Loretta Devine is really fun as the guidance counselor. Um, the two of them have fun chemistry. The whole time I'm like, I would rather just watch these two actors in a whole other, you know, romantic drama or romantic comedy or something. Like, they have genuine chemistry and they're fun to watch play off each other. But, like, (laughs) what's the focus of this movie? Because often it's just, like, shifting to the two of them. There was a whole sequence where they're set at a drive-in and River Phoenix is there with his girlfriend Lucy Deakins, who was, like, like, Lucy Deakins was like kind of a you know teenage star for a brief moment. She was in stuff like The Boy Who Could Fly, um, Great Outdoors, uh, Cheetah. It was like a handful of movies in a very, very, very small window of time. And then she just left acting. And I remember her being around a similar age as her, maybe a couple years younger, but seeing her in a lot of movies of this time period. And so I was kind of surprised to see her here. But there's a scene where it's her and River Phoenix at the drive-in. And then you see, like, Sidney Poitier is there with Loretta Devine's character. And I'm like, is this a stakeout? Like, what's going on? And it's like, no, they're all just at the driving. <laughs> I don't think it was a stakeout. I think he wanted to get his tent out. Oh, jeez. <laughs> I hope you're proud of yourself, Scott. <laughs> really dragging uh, little Nikita into the muck here. <laughs> <laughs> Did it ever leave the muck? <laughs> Well, you know what? I will say this uh, as a compliment to the movie. This is a you know teen-driven movie made in 1988. It could have been really smutty, which was very common in this era, and it's really not. It's got some weird bits, like for a like PG-rated movie. I think it is. Um, you have like Loretta Divide like jumping out of bed like topless very briefly, but it's like material like this would not be in a you know kid-oriented movie now. No, and I think that's something that we are missing now um the one thing i'll say that we haven't mentioned is i think underneath all the contrived nonsense in this plot the premise is quite interesting the setup is awkward 
Um, the idea of a kid having sleeper cell Russian parents, I think, is a great idea. Yeah. Like, whoever, I, I guess that would have been, you know, the story writers, um, Tom Muska and Terry Schwartz. Like, if that was their initial concept, like, that's a really interesting concept. And I, it's something I would honestly, so often you hear critics say, I would like to see, you know, bad movies remade as opposed to good ones. Because good ones, they got it right. And it's a sort of concept, whether you remade Little Nikita or you just took a similar kind of approach to the material like i would actually like to see a movie made a better movie made about a teenager with sleeper cell parents because i think it's a really interesting concept well they did um it's called spy kids oh you know what you're right well consider me corrected on that one uh but like did you even understand the setup for this where Sidney poitier is like sitting in his office at a computer and like looking up this kid and then like the parents pop up and the computer keeps flashing does not compute see i i had a problem with this i suppose the answer to your question is i didn't get it because why was poitier dealing with air force candidates when he's in the fbi they're different organizations i have no idea does air force send its like potential candidates to the fbi for background checks I imagine vetting takes place that i mean most of the time that's sort of shipped off to other or to other you know, branches inside of an organization. I thought the Air Force was big enough to have its own, you know, team of people who were doing background checks. Maybe it does, or maybe it didn't back then. And, you know, the FBI did, you know, they are the Federal Bureau of Investigation. They do investigate people. But I don't know why this high-ranking officer in the FBI was doing background checks and also working late to do background checks. And he had staff to do the background <laughs> checks for him that weren't working late. This guy clearly does not know how to manage stuff. I would also say that Sidney Poitier's character gives no indications of having a life. So um, maybe to him that's fun is doing background checks. On, on young airports. kids. Well, that's a worry. That's a red flag. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of uh, weird material with like the way they're just writing adults with kids throughout this movie is very strange. I, I, I mean, I'm already out of things I have to praise about this film. Do you have anything else? Like, I, I thought just some of the other actors were good. Like, I said Richard Jenkins and also Carolyn Cava as his mom. Like, I thought they were doing a great job, too, for the material. Um, everyone seems, like, invested. Even um, Richard Bradford as this um, Russian spy who's been sent into America to track down Scuba and bring him back to Russia. You know, this um, actor, it's not a character I have a lot of love for. He feels like he's kind of this extra ingredient thrown in but it's also really undercooked so it's like this character has also a weird relationship with the kid that i didn't really understand it kind of came out of nowhere and it feels really underserved i think in a different movie you would have gotten more out of that character but the actor's doing a strong job like he's someone who you're gonna remember when the movie's over i will agree with the parents i don't agree about um constantine played by richard bradford which i want to get back to okay the parents, I, I think, were, were pretty solid. And I appreciated that uh, Carolyn Kava can speak Russian. And she's clearly speaking Russian. And it's not like she's just read the lines and, and, and learned how to say them. She's saying those words. And I, that's, that's nice to see. Much like when we did Operation Crossbow and they were speaking German. Mm -hmm. I did appreciate that. That scene where they're at the ballet and they have a meeting with Constantine. And it, it's clear they're going through something. They, ha they have been out of the game for... I don't know, for 20 years since their son's been born, 16 maybe. 
and there's a genuine fear they're going to lose the life they've built. And you, I, I'm not sure I really get that from Richard Jenkins, but then he's playing the father. He's playing the protector role. He can't show his, his fear. But, you know, Carver brings you in because she is in, she's deadly scared of what's happening. She does not want to risk her life for what really is, is payrolling them being in America in the first place, which is Russia. And this is a movie made in the 80s. And one of the classic tropes of 80s movies is the uh, parents as aliens. And I mean that as space aliens. You know, you look at the parents in Gotcha, for example, and they are operating on a whole other <laughs> world than the kid, right? And that's something that was so common in these movies was like parents are unrelatable and they're weird. And in this movie, here's a case where they could be portrayed that way. They're Russian spies, right? Like, what does a kid born in America understand in terms of your parents being Russian spies? But the parents are treated in a way that you actually understand their emotional inner lives. You understand the family connections. So, like, I give the movie props for that, for not playing them as weird. Because so many movies of the era played the parents as kind of caricatures or just really strange. Caricatures was the word I had written down for some other characters we'll get to. But, yeah, I, I think they did... They did this well. I, I wouldn't be surprised if the parents and, and maybe Phoenix and Poitier were part of the original premise. Right. Because they feel they feel more fleshed out and they feel stronger. I was curious. Did you recognize Carolyn Cava from anything? No, I did not. It was driving me crazy through the movie because I'm like, why does this woman look so familiar? And apologies to the listeners. This is a Star Trek moment. But she played Beverly Crusher's colleague in the episode Ethics, where um, they really go head-to-head over treatment uh, for Worf's spinal injury. I mean, I, I, have, I have no memory of that episode, but I will take oh, wow. your absolute word for it. Is that the one where he requests to die because he, he, he doesn't want to have the surgery? Correct, yeah. Okay, okay. I, I have some memory of that now. I... I did I get my Star Trek credentials back, Cam? Uh, I'm not sure if you don't remember this character who's very prominent in the episode. <laughs> I don't know. I'm, I'm, I may have to withdraw the card here, people. Oh, no. I've had it since I was born. Okay. <laughs> um, which is saying something. Um, okay, I, I want to get into some some quibbles. Yeah. I have many of them. Um, my first question to you is, and you didn't mention this in, in your primer, but when was, uh, in the production, when was Quentin Tarantino involved? Um, was he involved? Well, I mean, this film is constantly staring at some guy's feet. Oh, okay. Yeah, because this was many years before, well, a few years before Tarantino breaks out, because that's 92 with Reservoir Dogs. I didn't, well, okay, are you talking about the scuba assassin, his feet? Yeah. They show that. Many times. Yeah, but that's because he's in flip-flops. It's the whole water thing. Is that what that was? Yes. But why would they... I mean, did they not have pedicures in the 80s? No. God, just cut your nails, man. He had, I, 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 did, I, I would rather stare <laughs> at Margot Robbie's dirty feet than this man's bunions any day of the week. <laughs> but maybe, like, the rough feet show that, you know, he's rough around the edges. Oh, what a save, Cam. <laughs> You've Thank saved you. the film. Thank Instant you. knock list. <laughs> rough around the edges. Oh, God. <laughs> Um, yeah, you know what? Going beyond the feet, though, this whole character didn't work. No. The scuba assassin is, like, portrayed as this ultra-deadly guy. He's killing an IRS agent right at the start of the movie. That one is not water-related. I didn't understand why. He just, like, stabs him to death in an office. And then they're like, 
he works with water and then every other death involves water and i'm like what about the irs guy was he drinking a glass of water at the time i don't know that the door was closed maybe he drowned in his own blood maybe i don't know it was weird but nonetheless like everything about this character was kind of just played as kind of cartoonish so i never took him that seriously even though he's killing people along the way he just seems goofy and they keep talking about the water stuff honestly once you have a body showing up at sea world i'm rolling my eyes like that's really goofy but then you get this whole bit at the end where they have to catch him and Sidney Poitier takes this guy down in the most awkwardly staged like fight scene ever where he like bends his arm and next thing you know this guy's like completely subservient and is like okay well guess I'm going back to Russia and he's just like a nothing it's so weird hey Kirk was taking people out with a chop to the neck I think I can a Sidney Poitier armbar could take anyone down that's ridiculous. This guy is like a deadly Russian assassin who's killed people. He's gone on a murder spree throughout this movie and like one little arm bend and it's like, well, I'm done. Gee, That's guess it. I'm finished, you know? <laughs> yeah, okay. And I love that they cut from like him having his arm bent on a boat to like, you know, hours later, it's just like Sidney Poitier just walking him onto like a train for a negotiation. Like, what the hell is going on with this fearsome assassin it doesn't even work from the get-go because you never really understand why he's doing this apart from money like it's extortion and it's not even much money no no i didn't write down the the amount but it didn't seem like very much Two hundred thousand. wow Two hundred thousand. the jackal in day of the jackal got paid more than that yeah i mean that's, I mean, I guess a lot of tickets to SeaWorld, but, and that actually is now reminding me of Troy McGlure in The Simpsons. Like maybe, maybe Scuba has a real thing about fish, but um, yeah, like 200,000 seems pretty minor, even for 1988. Yeah, I don't know what that was about. I mean, it, it wasn't fleshed out to start off with. And so you've got this guy creeping around who's wearing this really awkward, like prosthetic stuff on his face as well. Yeah, that looked weird. I, I assume that was a choice to make him look weary or weathered. Maybe. Like, is it a whole thing like he's been in the sun a lot? Oh. he likes his water. Oh, he's been in the water too long. His skin is wrinkled. Is that? <laughs> or is it just being at the beach? Like, sun damage? I, I mean, if we're having to figure this out, I don't think they ever took any time to think about it. But it just feels way too cartoonish. Like, this is the sort of villain you should have seen in something more akin to, like, Cloak and Dagger. Yeah, but then the real villain in Cloak and Dagger was, of course, oncoming traffic. That is also true. Mm. Or, like, Spy Kids, or even, like, you know, Austin Powers does something not so far off with, like, Goldmember. You know, it's like, uh, something like that makes more sense. In this movie, it's trying to be somewhat serious a lot of the time, but when you have elements like Scuba running around, you're just, like, going, what is going on? I mean, I know it's the 80s, and, like, this was the cocaine era in Hollywood, but it's still really weird. Yeah, I I just think he didn't really land for me, so I never really felt any tension. I knew Poitier was going to get to him in the end. But then I think you were supposed to be drawn into the Constantine character. That was meant to be the one you meant to kind of understand, because you could see him getting the mission in Russia and coming to America to try and bring Scuba back in. And, and you know, they, they pitch him as this kind of, oh, he's like Colonel Stock. Uh, it kind of, kind of bumbly, but also an assassin at the same time. Is kind of um, charming, almost. Well, he's supposed to be ambiguous, right? Like where you're supposed to question the whole time, like is he going to be dangerous? Because he's holding, you know, the River Phoenix character um, Jeff at like gunpoint and things like that. Like, is this guy going to potentially kill 
Sidney Poitier or River Phoenix. Like, is he a danger? And he has, like, a fun little line at the end, you know, where he says, like, you know, Russians don't kill their children. You know, the idea that, you know, Jeff was never in danger with him. It was more just a bargaining chip. And so it is kind of a little bit of that, a little more of the playful Russia versus America kind of spycraft. You see, um, you know, it's not America, but you look at, say, like, um, Free Your Eyes Only, where Bond has the device, throws it off the cliff, destroys it, and the Russian character from, you know, the Roger Moore era just kind of, like, laughs and walks away. And so it's the idea of, like, these two are kind of opposing each other in dangerous ways, but they have a certain amount of humanity and a little bit of a dark sense of humor about it. And you get that with this character here. I just wish they'd done more with him because I think, like, the actor... Uh, I'm not going to say this is a, you know, Oscar-worthy performance, but, like, he has presence. This guy has a face you remember. He's the sort of character actor that when you put him on screen, he does have a certain amount of impact, but it's just like he's kind of this watery element in a movie that's not that interested in him. I was just looking at his IMDb page. Did you know he was in The Untouchables? Oh, really? Okay. Uh, no, I don't remember him in that. Was he, like, a cop or something? Uh, he's playing a character called Mike. And that does not... It doesn't jump out to me. No, no. He's sixth build, so he's pretty high up. No, that has to be an order of appearance, right? Doesn't look like it. Oh, my God. Well, um, Patreon followers, uh, you know, you can expect the Untouchables at some time in the, uh, you know, not so far off future, I'm sure. Mm, indeed. But I, I was, I think I was a lot more sour on Scuba than I was on Constantine because it just failed. Yeah. Constantine had moments of uh, of glory. He also had, you know, he did have presence, like you said, and had some interesting scenes. But anytime Scuba turned up, you just you just start laughing. Yeah, and mostly at the situation and the fact that you're watching this twice. So yeah, <laughs> I, I I then you cry. It's a it's a process I go through when I watch some of these films. Um, I talked about how I admired this movie for dodging some of the '80s tropes that might have even undercut the material more. One trope it does not dodge, though, for the 1980s, is gay panic. There is definitely some serious moments of that throughout this movie. Um, you have right at the start where River Phoenix is going to be sort of interviewed for Air Force entry. And Sidney Poitier is posing as the Air Force um, interviewer. And he's like, do you like girls, son? <laughs> it's like, What? Firstly, you say posing as the uh, as the guy doing the assessment. I think he was genuinely doing it. Okay, I thought he was there. Okay, now I'm just confused. <laughs> yeah, I I I, th I get the impression that he was in the air force and then went into the FBI. That's the impression I got. So he still holds a rank because a lot of people do that in the armed forces. Yeah. They go from one service to the other. So that's not outrageous. Wait, was this? After the computer had said does not compute or before? After. Because I would assume he was standing in then to do the interview because he's suspecting the kid of something. Like he wants to get closer to the family so he's going to pose as the Air Force interviewer. Yeah. But then would he go to the point of like, if he's going to be an interviewer, does he have to be in uniform? Uh, well, if you're going like kind of undercover, I would assume you would have to. I mean, it really is stretching it at this point, isn't it? Uh, let's just go with the movie uh, at this point. And yeah, just go, but let's, okay, let's, go, let's go back to the case of the not gays. Yeah, yeah. Um, which, of course, everyone in this film is totally not gay. 
Yeah, totally not. Totally to- not. Totally not. I mean, I wouldn't pass this uh, assessment, but that's another story. Um, it's actually quite strange when you think about it now. Like that, it's a really horrible way of doing business, but because um, he really is hammering it home. Like, but you like girls, right? Do you like girls? And River Phoenix says, "I love girls in general." <laughs> There's even a point. This was something another part. I'm like, was this part of the common interview process where um, they have him get walked in by this Corporal Hogan character, this woman who's like very attractive, you know, when she's walking him in, where you kind of notice it because you're like, interesting casting for like 1988. This woman doesn't really blend into the scenery here. And then it's immediately all about, did you notice her? Did you notice her son? Did you see Corporal Hogan? And it's like, oh my God. <laughs> And like she's she's also like she's done up as well. Like if you're talking about being in army fatigues, she wouldn't. She's in her dress uniform. You wouldn't be wearing makeup. No, but she's got her hair done and she's wearing makeup. And you think, okay, this is definitely a test. But why is this test there to see if he's a Russian spy? Like later on in the in the interview, he says like you know he calls him comrade, and he says like a, a passage in Russian. Now that's a test. I get that, but the whole the whole not gaze um, that just felt a bit. Well, I assume it probably is protocol, unfortunately, in, in 1988. Probably would have been, but it still feels incredibly weird, and I feel really bad for Corporal Hogan. Uh, this woman, I'm sure, has worked quite hard to get to where she is, and my God, <laughs> this poor woman. Unless she was a spy as well. <laughs> oh, maybe, maybe. But you later have a scene where um, Sidney Poitier and River Phoenix are walking, and River Phoenix, like, like point blank, asks Sidney Poitier if he's gay. And says, like, there was, like, a busboy that was, like, following him around at some point. It's so, so weird. I mean, why didn't Sidney Poitier snap back and be like, well, only a gay guy would notice another guy following a guy, huh? It's so, so strange. I I, I don't know why this film made so many points to to pull that one out. Uh, The the interview, I guess I could kind of forgive. Uh, Maybe that was part of the process. But, yeah, the second time it's brought up, it's like, I think maybe it might be one of the writers just uh, signaling something there. Yeah, like 1980s military, there was like a lot of controversy about that sort of thing. So I can totally see that being an element of interviewing at the time, although I still feel bad for Corporal Hogan. What was... Hang on, before we move on from Hogan... Hogan? Hogan. Hogan. What was his nickname for her? Because he he says, ha, sometimes I call her something. Was it like Hold'em? Hold'em? Okay, so I put up... I put on the subtitles a couple times in this movie because there was dialogue where I couldn't make it out. He says Hogan's. Just Hogan with an S on the end. Oh, plural. I got the impression he was making some sort of euphemism about her breasts. He is. The Hogan's. The Oh, the Hogan's. Oh, oh here she comes. <laughs> yeah, Hogan's. Oh. As in, like, multiple, I, I guess. Like, that's what the joke was. It's a pretty bad joke. Okay. That scene was pretty bad. It is. It's really bad. And it's, it's noticeable. Apart from River Phoenix. Sure. Yeah, he plays it straight. But he plays playing. it straight. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. Yes. 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 That's not what I meant, damn it. But he... I'm bringing, I'm bringing you down to my tent level. Yeah. <laughs> he works with the material. He's giving it, like, the gravitas that it doesn't deserve. It doesn't no. deserve. No, he's yeah. got this like Michael J. Fox energy about him in that scene where he's like just bouncing all over the place because he's really nervous. And that, that was actually a really cool scene for him. Uh, just not a fan of everything else. Yeah, and I noticed also while we're talking about gay panic of the 80s, there's also a moment at the end 
where um, Karpov, um, Konstantin, um, says to River Phoenix, like, I want you to come visit me in Russia. And you're kind of like, what? Like, these two characters have absolutely no chemistry. We have not seen them have any sort of friendly relationship at all. But then he's like, Constantine throws in, and bring your girlfriend Barbara. It's kind of like, it's okay if you bring Barbara. Like, it would be weird. It's like the writers are constantly trying to justify, you know, a teenage boy hanging out with these older men. So they're working in lines like, are you gay? Or bring Barbara. You know, it's like so strange. Well, there's a scene before that where they're in the house together. He's just captured him. And he's talking to him in this kind of weird voice. Like, oh, Nikolai, uh, you know, it's all very nice in Russia. You'll love it. It feels like it's grooming a little bit. Yeah. And I don't know whether that was his... Because I don't know whether he's trying to get him on side, as if he's trying to turn uh, Jeff River Phoenix's character into an agent, maybe, or something. I didn't really get what he was trying to do there. He had him at gunpoint. He didn't need to be nice to him anymore. But he, he says, oh, he'll learn to love the Russian ways and... It's all very... It, it feels a little bit creepy. Yeah. Like your skin kind of crawls a little bit. Maybe that was the intention, and in which case I think they, they nailed it. But I, I don't know whether that was really what they were going for. Yeah, like there's definite kind of creeper vibes going on throughout this movie. And in some ways, it seems like the movie's trying to basically push back against them with a lot of this weird gay panic stuff that has aged horribly. But it just kind of hurts the movie overall. Like it, it's... There's a general air of weirdness around this movie that, you know, I'm sure if you were to sit in the theater in 1988 with the four other people that saw this movie, um, you would probably, it would just go right over your head. You'd be like, oh yeah, yeah, that would be normal. Because the 80s, you know, this movie doesn't have any of the, you know, F-word slurs that you so often hear in 80s or early 90s movies. It doesn't have any of that. But this was, you know, sort of a constant in 80s movies. And here it's just, works more into the plot than usual like usually it's just sort of a tossed off line or something whereas here they keep bringing you back to it in weird ways yeah i i had another question for you and that was about the score yeah did you make any notes about the score at all um well i noticed it was done by marvin hamlish who did the spy who loved me so that's sort of noticeable i i picked up on that too yeah, he does sort of a blend of like, you know, Russian music and kind of American orchestration I thought was kind of interesting, but it's not a score that I was, uh, you know, jumping onto iTunes to buy afterwards. See, it really rubbed me the wrong way. I I just... um, Well, it, it felt very like horror film at, at points, like it's like screeching chords and stuff, and it felt just really cheesy. And it was trying. To, it was playing against the serious tone that I think the film was trying to get. Um, and so that jumped out at me. But interesting, you took it a different way. The other thing I I wanted to bring up to you, as uh, being a Canadian and and me being British, of course. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of patriotism in this film, especially at the start of the parade and all the woohoo, let's join the air force together stuff. Is is anyone like that in Canada? Mm, I mean probably i'm sure there's like ultra patriotic canadians around there who you know <laughs> would be wearing roots gear and have the canadian flag out on their front yard i'm sure they're out there but it's not as much of a thing here like it's much more of an american thing you know you see um you know the um uh, richard jenkins character wearing like civil war attire at the start of the movie fourth of july is just a far bigger deal 
for like America than say Canada Day is in Canada. You know, we do celebrate it to some degree, but it's not like the U.S. Um, and also, this is an era where um, my years are going to get a little muddled, so I apologize to American listeners. But like, you had the Reagan era, and then you have Bush. There is sort of more of a, I think, pro-American sort of sentiment as well as you know something like top gun in 86 kind of more of a pro-military kind of vibe so it was just you know you think also like um rambo is still a huge icon right now rambo 2 comes or sorry rambo 3 comes out this same year um so the idea of sort of glorifying u.s military was like a big thing in this time period there was even a rambo cartoon series aimed at kids so yeah while we're throwing questions at each other, Cam, and you alluded to this earlier, and I got, and one of my first notes was about this and the fact that, is this a comedy? And then when I finished watching the film, I realized it wasn't a comedy. It was trying to be a serious character drama about a spy and his family, which didn't work. And so I thought, maybe the original idea would have been better anyway. And, and I just think, like, I think this film would have just worked better as a comedy. If you had gone back to that comedic route and I mean, yeah, okay, the situation is quite harrowing for the uh, River Phoenix's Jeff having his parents as spies, but that could definitely be yucked up. Yeah. Uh, I just think it'd be more entertainment value from that and also perhaps a, a bit more memorable. Or maybe just go full on coming of age story about him. Like the Sidney Poitier character is there, but we don't focus on you know his relationship with the guidance counselor and things like that like because i genuinely was interested about you know the river phoenix's jeff character like what's his relationship with his friends during all this they're invisible you never see the friends really after the opening um what is he talking to barbara his girlfriend about all that stuff is completely ignored i i would be more interested in just the coming of age story tackling this sort of material i think that would be more interesting than what you have here where it's kind of this half and half. And I know at this point in time, it was a real craze for these sort of cross-generational movies. You had a lot of body swap movies about, you know, adults swapping bodies with kids. And then you get to see the world through both sides. And they were big hits at the time. So I can kind of get that they want to deliver the Sidney Poitier stuff for the adults and the River Phoenix for the kids. But it feels like here, uh, body swap stuff makes sense. Like, I think that's a concept that like both, sides of the equation you know young and old can kind of lock in on and understand but like a spy story you get this really awkward middle ground where it just doesn't quite work where the Sidney Poitier stuff about his dead partner's a little too serious um but stuff like scuba the assassin is really goofy and silly and the kid stuff is kind of like trying to commit to the emotions of a teenager that teenagers could lock into but also ignoring the entire world of a teenager well i i suppose my question would be then if you're going to go your way and commit to the coming of age story what do you change i think you have to pull back on the sydney poitier um background stuff um he would be more of an unknown factor i think moving in and you would get a sense maybe of who he was but it would be more about seeing this sort of slowly unfolding world entirely through the kid's eyes I think that would probably just be, well, it wouldn't occupy the awkward middle ground this movie does. It would be making a choice, I think. See, for for me, if I was going to commit to it being a comedy, I would get rid of Constantine and add more scuba. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you're going to the, com- the comedic route, you've got to, yeah, totally blow that up. I don't know that I would take the comedic route. I don't really know. Would it be that funny? How, all know. the comedies we've covered in the 80s so far haven't been funny. Yeah. Well, they've had moments of, of funniness, but like ultimately, did Jumpin' Jack Flash go down as a great comedy of all time? No. No. Um, if we're going to go your way, I would get rid of Scuba as well. Yes. You have Constantine as like the actual menace. Um, but I, I, I don't know about pulling away from the Poitiers stuff. I think, you know, as, as a man myself uh, who was raised by people, uh, other men that weren't my biological father, grandfather, stepfather, um, I think having these other male father figures in your life is very important. And I think there's something in this script about that that works. It's not really honed in on. Um, and I appreciate that side from my personal perspective. Well, I think we agree actually there because I'm not saying like strip out Sidney Poitier's character. I like the relationship. I like the idea of a mentor protege, the idea of an FBI talking a kid through this. I think that relationship's really important. It's the core of the movie. I just think through the coming of age aspect, you make it more of that relationship filtered through what it means to this young person. I would be stripping out stuff like the relationship with the guidance counselor or just some of the like background elements of the Sidney Poitier character that we spend a lot of time on. I would be focusing it more through the kid's point of view versus this split point of view. You want to see him in school the next day dealing with the fact he's found out his parents are spies. Yeah. And then he's, and then he's got homework and his girlfriend needs something and that sort of thing. Someone who feels increasingly alienated from his you know, friends and his girlfriend because of the situation he's in and has to look to the Sidney Poitier character for that mentorship. Sort of Twin Peaks, Fire Walk With Me, Laura Palmer style just without the Sidney Poitier. That would be a very different movie. Mm. The ending was about as terrifying either way. (laughs) What did you think of the ending of this movie? I didn't get it. I didn't understand really, like, the physical mechanics of how it went down. I didn't really understand. Like, you mentioned the arm bend that lasted for about four hours, which was just comical, really. But, like, I didn't understand, like, was he trying to... Because his... Okay, because Constantine's mission was to bring Scuba back to Russia. Um, he was going to try and pay him off and then capture him. But like, was that really his goal at the end? It felt like he just wanted to kill the guy. And I, 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 I was lost and I've watched this twice. I thought the negotiation itself was a, you know, had a bit of tension going. It was a fairly well done scene. But yeah, the mechanics of how we get there, of everyone arriving at the same time on that train was a little weird, kind of strained credulity. Um, I like involving the parents but like you kind of have the classic 80s car chase that's pretty goofy um i i thought the negotiation bit was a fairly effective scene just in isolation i thought the shootout on the like overpass or whatever was much less so i thought that was pretty weak of just dispatching a scuba i did like them carrying the corpse through the border though and putting him in the back of the car that kind of made me laugh was it weekend at bernie's a little bit yeah yeah, I, I I I giggled at that. I thought that was a clever way of getting rid of the body. And to be fair, I, I've seen people in crowds not paying attention. I can imagine them walking a dead body through a very crowded area and no one giving an absolute F. Yeah. Yeah. Like, there's a dark sense of humor to some of the spycraft elements here that I appreciated. Um, that's, that's just what's so, that... This is what's weird with this film, Cam. I'm going to jump in. But, like... Yeah. It, it wants to have its cake and eat it. Like it, it wants to be a serious spy story and have this teen drama and be a comedy at the same time. But you can't have these like 
dark Harry Palmer elements, you know, Cold War espionage, and then on the same page have a James Bond villain in Scuba, and then have Anthony Edwards from Gotcha in the same <laughs> film. It they don't combine. It has a little bit of that kitchen sink approach where they just threw everything in and some things kind of glow, you know, a couple of the performances, a couple of the relationships, but a lot of it just feels like it just kind of drags everything down. Um, I guess before we wrap up then, Cam, is I've got a couple of final notes. Did you have any final notes for us? I had a question for you. This movie is 96 minutes, which... I always appreciate a 90-minute movie when we're doing this show because we have tackled a number of, you know, two-and-a-half-hour movies and what have you. But um, did you feel like this was a well-paced 90 minutes? No, I don't think so. I think it struggled in the back nine, as you golfing people would say. Yeah, I felt the same way. Like, I paused at a certain point, and I was like, oh, wow. Like, I'm nowhere near the end of this, and I was kind of surprised for being a 90-minute movie. Like, it didn't feel like it was moving particularly quickly it because it has that comedy energy at the beginning and and the joyfulness of river phoenix's character at that point he's he's having a good time in his fun life and he's enrolling in the academy and he's doing all this stuff but the second half of the film is is teenage angst and the drama that ensues and all this dark spy stuff and that's where it doesn't combine but i think it, it's the narrative is a lot cleaner in the first half and i think that's what makes it go maybe a little bit faster but when it starts to get more messy with all these extra players and different allegiances, I think it just just gets confusing. And you lose the connection to the Sydney Poitier-River Phoenix relationship because that gets pretty much tossed aside in favor of all these sort of convoluted goings-ons there in that last half. Yeah, exactly. That that That's where I sit on it. And, and it's a shame, but I think the... I think the plot that they fleshed out was was already quite poor, so I don't think it would have been saved anyway if they if they rewritten it. I think they would have had to have started back at the original premise and, and reworked it. But um, a question I had for you: Did you get nostalgic about the old MS DOS computers and the dot matrix printers? No, <laughs> they were not the greatest thing in the world, people. <laughs> they were the like pretty clumsy and awkward to use. I I used to work with a dot matrix printer, and it was kind of cool to hear that. Uh, that clickety-clackety noise. Sure. Uh, I, I do appreciate that. And there is a line in this film that I had to write down. I'm not using it for my outro because I wanted to highlight it in the episode. And it's, it's, this is obviously written in 1988 and it's still prescient now. The Russians say to Constantine, what we fear most is the American media. Hmm. Yeah. And by yeah. God, is it terrifying now. <laughs> um... I had a couple other notes I will mention. Um, you had Jerry Harden showing up here as an FBI agent, and he would go on to play Deep Throat um, on X-Files. So I thought that was fun, FBI connections. And also, um, there was some interesting uh, cross-cutting going on. You had like a scene early on where they were setting up spy stuff that was being like intercut with like a horse race or something like that. You also had the ballet sequence being intercut with like some spy craft going on and it was reminding me of quantum of solace <laughs> oh god who wants to be reminded of that film and i think this movie did it better than quantum of solace that's a very bold claim uh um, it's a very bold claim i don't think it is uh, i don't think it is hard to say that it was doing it better than quantum of solace 
We'll, we'll put a pin in this and come back to it when we eventually get round to the Craig films and you can compare and contrast. Yeah, yeah. Although, there's another little reference for horse hearts there, I suppose. <laughs> it's back, baby. Yeah. I didn't. I when you said about Jerry Harden being in X Files, when you you said his name, I was like, oh Christ, was he in Star Trek? And I've forgotten. No. Yeah. I thought I was genuinely losing my card this week. I I knew I recognised him from somewhere, and then you said it, and it clicked. Uh, no, oh. don't say it. Don't say it. He was in uh, Star Trek, actually, The Next Generation, and he played a very prominent character in a two-parter. Oh God! Oh God! Don't! 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 don't. Oh my god, it's right there in my head. This is so embarrassing. <laughs> so really embarrassing, is. folks. Oh, oh, I know. It's um it's the one where they go back in time. He plays Mark Twain. Yes, that's correct. Yeah, yeah. Yes. He plays Mark Twain. What's the name of the episode? Hang on. This is this is gold for the listeners, by the way. They've all tuned out at this point. It's a two part or it's like season six five into six, I think. Yeah. Uh and it completely escapes me the name. Like past times arrow, times arrow. Good God! No wonder I don't host a Star Trek podcast. Mm. Where's Tyler? Where's Tyler when you need him? Yeah, no kidding. So, um, yeah, I guess some Star Trek connections this week. <laughs> <laughs> we're really, guys, we're really trying to give you some stuff here about this film, but it did not give us much to talk about. I have to say, we're like we're sitting at the uh, eighty-minute mark, and we're, we're we're like scratching our heads. Well, it was one where when I was finished, I didn't hate this movie at all like i you know it played i was like oh that's kind of interesting i'm glad i watched it it was interesting to watch you know a early river phoenix vehicle Uh, so Sidney poitier i become you know as of late more interested in seeing some of his 80s work 90s work just because i have pretty strong understanding of the old stuff not so much of the new um so that was rewarding unto itself but um it was a movie that when i was done it was kind of like mush where I was like, okay, I can pick out elements to talk about on the podcast, but I don't have a lot of, you know, when I'm taking notes, I'll put like asterisks next to like kind of my impact points I want to bring up, like really strong stuff where I'm like, okay, this is going to be a really good conversation starter, or this is a really strong point I think I have on my take on the movie. And like, there wasn't a lot of those for this movie. I mean, my highlight was let's make a joke about Quentin Tarantino and feet. Yeah. That just goes to show, I mean, either I have nothing interesting to say ever, which is quite possibly true, or it didn't give us much to talk about in the first place. Yeah, yeah, that's sort of the case. Which is, I, I don't know whether that, that's probably just an indictment on a film, but it also maybe goes to show the fact it didn't do well in the theatres, because it wasn't particularly memorable. People who did see it, there wasn't word of mouth, because they'd instantly forgotten about the film as soon as they left the theatres. Yeah, and it's not one that has had sort of a real resurgence in the world of, you know, I was referencing earlier Quigley Down Under being really popular on TV. I don't think Little Nikita had that sort of, uh, you know, cult fandom going on. It's not one I've heard anyone really mention. I did think about you, Cam, when they say, like, his name is Jeff Nick Grant, or Jeff Nicholas Grant, I should say. And then you find out Nicholas stands for Nikita, and his first name actually was Nikita originally now you have a very interesting middle name yourself yes which is one i still don't quite understand so i'm wondering if you do have any sort of secret spy connections with your parents uh (laughs) my middle name is veril which think of um yeah it's like uh v-e-r-r-e-l-l so i i don't know that's just one that's been passed down through the family there's no spy connections that i know of 
Um, I don't even know where that would originate. It's definitely not a Russian spy name. Would be Veril. I don't know who, where Veril would come from. Could be like Verily or something. It's probably from the UK, right? I've never heard that name before. Maybe it's like a Celtic name that I, I'm not aware of. I don't think it's Celtic. I don't think we have background in Celtic. And it's probably was spelled something else, like Feral, for example, and has been just changed over time. I have no idea. Well, I mean, I have seen you in, in person. I would say you're quite feral. That makes sense. That's true. Um, I have vague memories of my mom telling me the origins, but I can't remember at the at the moment what they were. Probably like a misspelling along the way. That makes sense. I mean, you can tell we're definitely struggling now we're talking about this. <laughs> that's that's true. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> All right. I think... I think we have arrived at the ultimate question, um, and I want to know, little Nikita, does it compute or not? Is it making the knock list? Cam, you're up first. I think this one's pretty obvious. It's a no. Um, it's the kind of movie that I think spy fans, late at night, say it's like 10 o'clock at night, you don't really want to go to bed, you can throw it on, it's 90 minutes, you know, you're going to get a, you know, a couple good performances. Some spycraft stuff here and there, but you probably won't remember it in the days going forward. It's, you know, it's fine. It's it's watchable, but nothing very good. Yeah, I, I don't think uh, I have much more to add, except that it was dead. 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 <laughs> On arrival. <sighs> I, do you know what? I, I don't hate this film. It It's definitely not one of the ones I would go back and rewatch. But it's not one of the ones I'd ever consider the disavowed list for. I didn't hate my journey through it. I just didn't get anything from it. I think if you're a completionist, go for it. If you like uh, River Phoenix's work or Sidney Poitier's work, it's worth checking out. But um, I think you'll be frustrated with the possibility of what could have been and what is actually delivered. Yeah. So it looks like it is two no's, and therefore Little Nikita is not making the knock list. As such, the dossier on the film is closed and filed as classified. Cam, before we talk about what we're doing next week, we did mention it at the top of the show, but um, for those who don't know, we've recently launched a Patreon. So the gist of it is basically we are doing a patreon page where you can come and support the show we've got some goals lined up and some different levels of uh, patronage you can pledge and for that of course we have two different types of things you can access so we have our agents in the field series where we're basically covering some great films by our famous spy actors in non-spy roles so the first two films we have released at the moment are sean connery in the rock and we have uh, Paul Newman and Robert Redford in The Sting. Both very different films from each other, but, uh, you know, very interesting conversations and films that I hadn't really dug into very much in the past. Yeah, and we have some really fun ones lined up as well to tackle. And I think we can say right now, too, like the commentary that you'll be getting this month if you sign up for the top tier will be for Goldeneye. We are going to tackle a commentary for the uh, Pierce Brosnan debut, a movie that we love a lot. Yeah, so... You know, we would love for you to come along and support the show. Of course, you'll keep getting this same free Spy Hard episode every week. We don't miss a beat here on Spy Hards. But if you want that extra shot in the arm of Spy Hards, come along, support the show, and become an agent. That's right. But Cam, what are we doing next week? Well, Sidney Poitier is journeying with us into next week. We are tackling the Day of the Jackal remake, The Jackal, 
starring Bruce Willis. Yeah, this this film seems to have this uh, legacy that I am privy to, but I've not seen the film. When we had uh, Jeff, who we've mentioned on this episode already, uh, on to tackle the day of the Jackal, when we told him we were tackling the Jackal, I said the Jackal a lot in the last 30 seconds, hmm. um, he was like, oh, you're going to love this, in kind of a sarcastic you know, Mystery Science Theater 3000 kind of way. And so I'm looking forward to watching a car crash. Yeah, well, strap yourself in. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there you go, folks. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to watch The Jackal and join us next week. Now, Little Nikita did not make the knock list, but if you want to find out more about the knock list, you can go to letterbox.com slash spyhard or look us up on the website and you can find out the films that made the knock list, the films that didn't, and the films that got disavowed. Now, we are, of course, a proud member of Quite the Thing and Podbreed Podcast Networks. You can find out more about them on their websites. And do not forget to follow us discreetly on social media at spyhards, that's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. But until next week, listeners, you live in fame, you die in flames. Stick this up your bladder, Boris. <laughs>